Hi, everybody. This is Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed New York State mental health counselor. And this is Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma-informed bodywork therapist. And this is The Positive Mind. Bringing you some ideas, concepts, and guests to try and help you lead a more positively-minded life. And through popular demand, we brought our guest back, Richard D. Smith. We like to have on the show from time to time people who have made a difference and people who have made a change, a dramatic change in their life. And if you listened to us last week, you learned that Richard was uh, the product of uh, a very complex situation. He was born to a mother who was uh, addicted to drugs, a father who was uh, killed before he was even born. And grew up in the Bronx, New York, and ended up in jail at the age of 16, got out, and then had to go back in. So uh, we want to talk more about you, Richard, today, and uh, the tremendous work you're doing, um, helping people with trauma, generally creating really healing modalities for communities to get well. So I want to thank you and welcome you back to The Positive Mind. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be back. Yeah, I was looking forward to this the entire week. So uh, glad you Thank you so much for being back. So I want to talk a lot about your workshops today. Uh, and again, people can get last week's interview on the Positive Mind radio show. So I don't want to recap all of that. But I, I want to talk a lot about your workshops, because I think that will say a lot about how you're helping people heal. Let's go there first, if you don't mind. Could we talk about... How about holistic healing for boys and men of color impacted by trauma? Interesting. Are you ready to handle all yeah, of that? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. I'll, I'll say it again for our audience. Holistic <laughs> healing for boys and men of color impacted by trauma. So the first thing I'll say is that it's surprising how little we do know about trauma. Um, and so, like, the, the trauma 101 is so important early on in the process before you can get specific. So, right, and I say that intentionally, right? So there's the trauma one-on-one when it's like the psychoeducation, you're talking about the neurological effects of trauma, you're talking about the ways in which, you know, certain behaviors and symptoms of trauma, the different types of trauma. And it's surprising to know that, to learn that many people don't know about it. Many people who are working in institutions um, and at organizations that need to know it, right? If you're working at an after-school program and you're providing additional academic support to young people who are having some challenges in the school during the regular day, um, you should know about trauma, right? If you're working in a GED program, right, with some young adults who may have had some challenges in the past that are trying to get back into school, you should know about trauma, if you're working at a corporation and you're trying to diversify your your staff, right, to make it more equitable, right, to really live out the values of diversity and inclusion, you should know about trauma and the ways that trauma shows up and lives in, in the bodies of the people that you're interacting with. So basically, any space that you're working in where you're interacting with people, you should know about trauma. And so for me, the specific focus has been helping people understand the unique ways in which trauma impacts the lives of people of color, really specifically with boys and men of color, drawn from my own personal experiences as a young man of color, a black man who experienced a tremendous amount of trauma growing up, and the fact that people did not understand what was happening to me 
and how that led to me um, dealing with situations that I should not have had to deal with, right? right? If my teachers early on understood the impact of trauma and saw that my inability to focus was a form of hypervigilance and my awareness of everything around me because I was trying to survive, and it wasn't that I wasn't paying attention to the teacher because I was being disrespectful. It was just that's how my body was responding because of my trauma. If they understood that, they would not have had to misdiagnose me as being, you know, disruptive in class. If they would have known that, like, me acting out and, like, having people trying to make people laugh was a way that I was, like, coping with the challenges that I was facing at night or falling asleep in class was a result of challenges that I was facing at night because the school was just more of a safe environment and more of a peaceful environment, then they wouldn't have perceived it as being disruptive or disrespectful to them, and they could have gotten me the support that they needed. And so we start from there. I start from there and, like, try to create a space in any organization with any group I'm working with to help them just understand the basics of of trauma. And then I go into the the upper-level stuff and talk about the unique ways in which people of color experience trauma. And so for Boys and Men of Color, and we talked about this last week, where we describe the ways, or I was describing the ways in which racism exacerbates the experience of, of trauma for boys and men of color, right? I was describing the ways in which our experiences with law enforcement who might engage in abusive relationships, um, abusive right. behavior with us, exacerbates our experience of trauma. Of so course. one of the things that's happening um, and I'll just lift this up, is you know, hospital-based trauma response programs that have started to become a thing in a lot of hospitals, a lot of trauma hospitals, specifically for young men of color who are victims of of community violence, gunshots, or stabbed, or some more like physical violence. And what you found is that in these trauma hospitals, people were looking at them and trying to talk to these these young men who were victims and didn't understand why they didn't want to communicate with them. They didn't understand why they were angry and they were, like, upset, right? And I'm, here to, I'm here to help you and, I'm here and you're not even communicating. You don't want you're to not communicate. telling me what's hurting. You're not telling me who did it. Right. You're not telling me, you know, where it, where it happened. You're not giving me any information. Actually, you're giving me attitude. Right. Right? right. And they didn't know that that was a trauma response. Right. Right. They didn't know that this person had experienced like beyond the physical trauma, yes. even in a trauma hospital. Right. They didn't understand the psychological effects of trauma right. or the neurological effects of trauma and the way that it could help them really engage that person so that they could get the, the, the information that they needed to assist them. And so that they wouldn't personalize it as being disrespectful or disruptive or noncompliant or not wanting help, which is something that we hear all the time. Right, right. You don't want the help. Right. We talked about it um, last week a little bit, the resistance or why are you being resistant? Right. Because that's a protective factor. And then you add in that I don't trust these institutions and the historical trauma that comes from um, black people's experiences in medical institutions. Right. Right. The ways that we've been harmed by the medical model. Right. You know, all of the tests, all of the things that have been done to us negatively. And then you have a police officer who shows up at your bed and you don't trust police. Yeah. Right. Right. Because police have not shown me respect in my community. And now I'm laying in this bed with, you know, shots in my body, hurt, angry, scared. And a police shows up and asks me to give them information. 
Yeah, right. Thank you for painting such a very clear picture <laughs> as to the condition and the situation often of a young African-American male. To break it down, I mean, if if I'd imagine trauma education, you could say, who in this room has seen a gun? Who has seen a friend of theirs killed? Who has seen their mother beaten or hit? Who has seen XYZ take your pick? You know, and that's going to vary from community to community. But there it is. There's your trauma. And now your system goes in. Basically, trauma is your system's overloaded. You cannot handle the stimuli that you are presented with. So if you're in a, a, you know, if you're in a hurricane, you know, and all of a sudden you've lost all control. You've been a victim of the hurricane. This is a natural disaster. That's a type of trauma. This type of systemic and daily trauma, repeated ritually um, for the African-American boy, takes their body and makes their system rigid and very protective uh, and vigilant. You, you said hypervigilant is one of the byproducts of uh, post-traumatic stress. So first we have to get them to acknowledge this is trauma. This is what's happened to you. Now let's let's fix your system. Let's diffuse your system. I know Nasima is a trauma specialist. I want to ask you specifically what what steps you take to help somebody release the hold of trauma on their body first, and then on their attitude second, or their their life in general. But Nasima, you want to say something about trauma, like those those the medical community or people who are interfacing a lot with different populations to understand how not only that it's trauma, but also how to manage their own responses to the trauma and how to actually work with someone to bring them out of that trauma response, which is basically they're in their sort of back amygdala brain, emotional limbic system, and to bring them into their prefrontal cortex and to get them thinking like the hopefully adult or even like young adult that they are. I mean, that's the real... That's the real work. And also those those people need to work with their own trauma stories. And this is where it's just like many layers of the onion, but, but it's important to recognize and to teach and to get more people thinking about that too. Absolutely. And that's why I love Dr. Bruce Perry's work, his R's. I always forget the third one, but the first two are like regulate and relate. And so you have to get a person regulated before you can start to relate to them. And even in... Um, situations where you might hire people of color who might share some of the same experiences of of the young people that they're working with, they have a tremendous ability to relate to them. They can say, "Hey, I've been there," right? Right. But yeah. before that, you before you can get them to relate, you have to help them regulate. Because if they're you know dysregulated, they're not going to be responsive to anything. Right. Right. And so that's absolutely right. And part of the regulation process is us being regulated and checking in with our bodies. You know, one of the things that I say to folks often, you have to figure out where you're coming from, where you're at in this process, right? On an individual level and a systems level, right? Right. What's your understanding of racism? Do you understand how racism is ubiquitous and impacts the lives of this young person? And if not, have you asked, right? Have you thought about it? 
you know, how have you thought about the ways that you've benefited from it to the extent where you can have a conversation and say, hey, you know, and talk about your privilege and even talk about your fragility in a way that can open up a conversation that makes them feel like you're at least trying to make an effort to understand where they're coming from. Not in a sense of cultural competency, because I push back on that term, right? Because I don't think you can fully ever know someone's culture, right? Um, but you can have an appreciation, right? You can have an, you can have like a curiosity and a humility right. to ask what's happened to you and what's going on with you and say, I don't know. Teach me. Show me. And, and these are things that are incorporated in the, the, the holistic healing um, for boys and men of color, right? Also understanding that we need to um, engage boys and men of color, not in just therapeutic spaces. And so the way that it's, it's broken down for, for the work that I do is I look at it from a relational standpoint. And I say that relationship trauma is all relational. It's relationships with individuals. It's relationships with family. It's relationship in your community. It's relationships with systems. And the same way that trauma can harm people within these relationships, healing can happen in those relationships, right? And so um, that's why we have programs like Credible Messengers or Cure Violence Model, where you take people who have shared the experiences of the young people who are, have been exposed to violence or prone to violence in their community because of a variety of issues. And you bring these folks together with them because they can relate to them because they have that credibility. They've kind of been there and done that. Um, and that is a powerful relationship that can be healing and precipitate the healing journey. But also, those people might not have the knowledge of the therapeutic practices, right? So they might not understand the importance of regulation before you can even get to a point where you can relate to someone. And then the other piece for me is the, the, the importance of, you know, developing a sense of agency, recognizing your power to change the conditions that exacerbate your experience of, of trauma, right? Um, what can you do to change these systems that might be racist, these policies that might be racist, in order to reclaim your power? Because if we think about trauma distilling down to powerlessness as the way that you describe it, yes. the process of reclaiming your power is healing. Talk to us about uh, your own ability to regulate because I mean I've been watching you now for the second show and I'm amazed at your ability to answer a question and that's a discipline let's let's be honest that's an experience I mean you are you've been speaking for years but you're you take a question and you flesh it out in such full fashion talk about your own regulation and ability to regulate because you went to prison at 16 then went back at 20 how old were you when you were yeah so you hadn't fully regulated just yet mm. uh if that's fair to say i mean i don't know if that's the right term but uh, i like this idea of you can't relate until you've regulated first if you're trying to relate and you've been traumatized and you don't even know the sources of the trauma and what that experience is like how can you really successfully relate to people. So you have to educate your system, your body to be regulated so that you're available. Aspects of you are available to relate to. The other piece that I kind of left out that was really critical in my journey was spirituality. Um, getting to a place where I had to understand an alternative reality that was not just 
exclusively this physical one because the physical one was so overbearing. Like you said, at the age of 16, I was arrested uh, for the first time and sent to an adult jail. And I went back in and back out. But really, all of these behaviors that led to that were these trauma responses. I take responsibility for my actions and the hurt that I caused to other people because even if it wasn't a physical crime against someone, there was harm that was caused to people's property. There was damage that was caused. And there was damage that was caused to myself. So not to minimize it, but also to recognize that there was something that happened to me. And that point was really freeing and liberating for me to realize that there wasn't something innately wrong with me. Because that's the other piece about racism, right, that says that there's something innately wrong with you. Because if we don't understand that there's, like, some type of um, antecedent, like, cause or that contributes to many of the issues that impact black and brown communities, um, we'll be left with the the thought that there is something innately wrong with them, right? There's something innately wrong with them that makes them more prone to crime, makes them more prone to drop drop out of school, makes them more prone to all of these things. So we have to have this systems analysis to say that there's all of these other factors that are contributing to that, right? That they're being targeted more so than in um, other communities. That, you know, teachers are coming in with this perception that is rooted in racism, that's making them think that they're more violent. We talk about the adultification of black boys, where black boys at the age of eight are viewed as adults. And like when that happens, you see them as an adult black boy and not as a child, and you respond accordingly. Like so, there are all of these factors that like contributes to the ways in which they experience these settings that needs to be considered. And I needed to understand those things about my own experiences. Right. Right. And when I did, that's when I became liberated and free uh, to the extent that I realized that I was not the sum total of the bad decisions that I had made. Because at one point I thought that I was just, you know, I was just supposed to be a thug. You know, I was just supposed to be a certain way. Right. You know, violence was normalized. Certain behaviors had become normalized. Right. Uh, To the extent that I felt like that's I was just functioning accordingly. And so there was this process of the spiritual process that helped me to realize that there was inherent, like we were all inherently good, right? That was liberating. And then there was this, this, this really intense like study of like African ancestry and just really immersing myself in African thought in a way that um, gave me an alternative means to define myself that was inconsistent with the short-lived history of blacks in America, right? That there was this ancestry that uh, that we derived from. There were these civilizations that we created that made major contributions to, to everything from mathematics to science to yes, astrology right. to spirituality. They were all very empowering, but they gave me an alternative way to define myself and and influenced the way I I viewed the world. It changed my worldview. Right. Right. So it made sense that I felt more comfortable working in a group, right? Because like an Afrocentric 
value system is collectivism versus individualism, right? And so it wasn't that, and it's funny because I joke about this at times, right? Because, you know, you got kids who are in school and teachers are like, oh, you can't study together. You need to do it on your own and you need to yeah. just work independently. And it's like, you know, but like it's inconsistent with my culture. Like it's inconsistent <laughs> with who I am. I like to be a part of groups. You ask yeah, me right. how I flesh out thoughts. I like to talk because I like to get to know people. I like to learn about people. Right. And it's through communication. It's through verbal communication. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this stuff is not done on a professional level. It's just done with a genuine interest and a desire to know people, to learn more about myself, um, and to figure out how we can be mutually supportive of each other's healing. I love that idea of that I am good. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I, I, to me, that would turn everything around because – uh, often a felon or somebody who's committed a crime or an African-American boy who might be walking around thinking, well, society says I'm bad. Maybe I am bad. I, I believe I am bad. How, if they can own this goodness as a starting point for healing, I'm good. And now, I have a legacy, a cultural heritage of goodness that I can tap into and use as a resource instead of being defined by you know people in my culture even out of my culture defining me who i am can you talk a little bit more about good because we like to give people a feeling on the positive mind a feeling can you tap into your own goodness it's also an instance of of systemic racism right okay sadly right because it's not even just like interculturally that we internalize these notions like where did they come from right if you go through your whole entire education experience and you never learn about the greatness of your ancestry, right? With the exception of, like, this right. small, like, portion during Black History Month, and they might talk about Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, right. right? Or they talk about slavery. No one wants to think that their ancestry began in slavery, as enslaved people, yes. right? And so it is, like, so critical to have a consciousness and an awareness of your ancestry beyond that, that it takes to shift and realize that there isn't something um, innately wrong with you, that there's right. a lot that's right with you. And that's when you think about that within the context of trauma, right? And how uh, trauma, the trauma-informed approach shifted from what's wrong with you to what's right with you. But simultaneously, uh, in a system of, of white supremacy or racism, you have you like so many people telling you that there's something wrong with you as a people. And not necessarily consciously they're trying to do no. that. You know, it's not in a textbook anywhere. It just is uh, communicated down through the ages, and people are doing it subconsciously or unconsciously often in the case. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it started back when somebody decided that black people were somehow enslavable. You know, like where, you know, where that came from, you know, was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Wow, somewhere somebody decided that this was okay somehow and then enforced and did this. Yeah. And that there's like sort of that original thing that's that's been passed down even that that continuation on both sides. You know, it's like somehow there was a decision made. Well, I mean, you have to say the history of humanity has been pretty brutal and I think yeah, we're at a God, good yeah. you know, we're at a moment where we can acknowledge the brutality of history in general, and particularly slavery. I mean, nothing more uh, dehumanizing and, and insulting and cruel 
than enslaving another human being. So, and then chattel slavery, more and, specifically. When right. you treat someone like an object, like your possession, to the extent where you could just treat right. them um, as cruelly as you did. But, you know, do you also see that, like, uh, despite even having that knowledge and um, and that, like, that historical knowledge to understand it, that you come from this legacy of greatness, that there is good in you, you've made these contributions to civilization, right? When you start to, like, form this sense of self-worth and, like, value, and then we still have to say that black lives matter. We still have to say that our bodies are valuable, Yes, right? Mm -hmm. In the midst of anti-blackness, when you look on the news or you go on social media, you're constantly seeing so many examples Mm. of brutality, Right of abuse that's taken place that says he thought you were valuable. I don't care what type of degree you have. You thought you were valuable. I don't care where you work. I want to you know, just take a stab at this because to me the Black Lives Matter is not a strong enough language. It's not strong. It's almost like a victimization language, you know. And I think how can it? How can we use a phrase? Black lives are something that's empowering instead of matter. It's almost like you're saying black lives matter to the, you know, just to remind the white patriarchy and cultural paradigm rather than have a a really forceful phrase that says, let's meet you on your level. Black lives matter is not enough. That phrase is just not enough. Yeah, and, and you know it's interesting you make that point. A lot of a lot of folks make that point, but it does say a tremendous amount about our society where you have to. Yeah, start we have to there. start somewhere. You have to start there, right. literally, because the lives of of black folks have not been valued. That is, I think that is why it was so powerful, right? Because like this is where we have to start. Yeah, right. In two thousand and fourteen. 2008, like we still have to say that we're our lives matter. I want to get my producer in here because we mm-hmm. never we never get a chance to have her chime in, and we knew this would be a, a special topic for her. Mm. And I just want her to chime in. Go ahead, Connie. And I was thinking very much about my own experiences with the Black Power movement in the 60s. And when we talk about that, and I can't believe we're having these same conversations again, and I hear the elders of the community saying, I can't believe we're still having these conversations. And when they say it's not powerful enough to say Black Lives Matter, they said Black Power. And the patriarchy came and snuffed that out. And the white supremacy and the systematic racism snuffed that out for all the positive programs that were put into action in communities, for the healing, for the outreach, for everything that was being done. That was snuffed out pretty quickly, and it was done even through the Vietnam War by... Dra- yeah. overdrafting right. people of color as opposed to and white college kids because they were the troublemakers. So when I see the current feelings that people have, and we are having those discussions again, I like to think that the roots of that in the communities were sown and that the elders of the communities can say, you have power, you do have power, and our lives do matter. And we have to keep having these conversations. Do you feel that there's an urgency now to have those conversations once and for all? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, so I think, so what happened after the black life, after the, the black power movement, you know, we found ourselves being sucked into the, the system as individuals, right? Programs, like you mentioned, were designed to give certain individuals access to opportunities and give people uh, equity in hiring and, like, college applications and, like, admittance, right? Um, but these were all, like, efforts to just give certain individuals opportunity. And so we, we, we left behind the importance of collectivism in a way that would help us really truly build the power that we needed to not just get handouts and opportunities, but to recreate systems in a way that they could not perpetuate the inequity that we are fighting against. Richard, I'm going to stop you there. We need to take our break. And I'm going to say it's pretty similar to interrupting you last week because we're coming back talking about vision. Let's talk about vision since that paradigm didn't work and maybe necessarily what's uh, happening now isn't working. What's the vision, what's the next step on a societal level that we could do uh, to really, truly, authentically empower uh, the black man, the black child, the black person, and any system of, of trauma? You've been listening uh, to The Positive Mind. My guest is Richard D. Smith. We will be back after this musical break. And we are back with Richard D. Smith. Um, we were talking about trauma and uh, black power movement and Black Lives Matter movement and um, necessarily them not being enough in and of themselves. What? Uh, and you made an important point as during the break about the difference between equality and equity. I know I, we do want to return to this concept of trauma and um, what a young person might be up against right now. Uh, in terms of their own trauma and how to heal that. But I did want to give voice to this concept about the difference between equality and equity. Can you say uh, something about that? Yeah. So simply equality is giving everyone the same thing, right? And so equally, we all are equally receiving the same amount. But when you take into consideration the tremendous disadvantage of certain groups, me giving you equal is not going to make it equitable. Not We're not going to be on the same playing field, right? If you're starting from, right. if you have a 400-year head start or you even have a 30-meter head start in a race, 
Um, or if you have, I'll say it like this, if you have one of your legs are damaged, right? And I'm, we're starting at the same <laughs> right. point. I see. And I uh, see. you have a sprained ankle. Right. Like, this is an equal starting point. Right. I but guess. it's not equitable. Of you course. should get some more of an advantage in order for I it to see. get to an equal And there is a huge conversation about this, yeah, about yeah. repairing deficits intergenerationally and how to really achieve equity in, instead of equality. And equality. And, and it's, it's an important value distinction. Equity is really a virtue and a value. Equality is is you know is just a sine qua non. It is the beginning point. There has to be equality, but equality doesn't mean equity. There has to be equality and equity. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I like the way that you frame it as an as a value. Yes. Right. Because it takes it takes into account all of the past experiences and deficits that groups have experienced. Yeah. Um, and so it is a value perspective. It is a way that you will look at a situation that does not, that can't be applied blanketedly like equality. And so, and to your, to your earlier question about just this transitioning into how is this healing? Um, and so I love uh, referencing my friends. I have some really amazing friends um, one of my dear friends and colleagues, Dr. Um, um, Anna Ortega-Williams, uh, did some amazing research around um, the healing properties of organizing and organizing to create systems of change, to recreate um, these systems in a more equitable way. And the process of being able to reclaim your power and um, organizing and coming together as being healing, mentally healing, yes, mentally therapeutic, right? Like we were talking about before, if trauma distills in, down into powerlessness, then the process of reclaiming your power is healing. And so what she was able to find by looking at young people who were organizing, um, community organizers in New York City, is that these same young people were experiencing a sense of collective post-traumatic growth that was healing for them. Right. Not just on an individual level, but as a collective. Right. And so what we're seeing happening now, the uprisings, the protests, these are all healing opportunities for folks. And it's unfortunate because when we look at it, we just see like the unrest. And I get it. It's scary, right? People are frightened, right? But understanding the same way that we do on an individual level, the impact of trauma and the shift from what's wrong with you to what's to what happened to you. And then seeing how that process plays out and sometimes becoming angry at the same person who's trying to reach out to help you. That this is a collective anger. This is a collective justifiable rage that's associated with a collective traumatization that folks have experienced. And this collective effort is a part of, it's almost cathartic, but it's definitely healing. And it's healing not only just in a way that on, a, on collective individuals, but it's healing in a way that we can transform these systems to become more equitable so we can then also see the fruits of our labor. But her research really talks about how the process in itself is healing. 
Well, it, it strikes at the Abe Maslow, the famous psychiatrist, uh, theory about belonging and the need for belonging and the deficit of belonging in our culture, in a capitalist c- culture, let's say, that belonging is very hard to achieve, if, especially if you're headed for the prize, if you're headed for more consumerism, consumer goods, um, and not looking at your neighbor as somebody who you can belong with and work together with and organize with. So organizing, I think that's what we're seeing out there is that these people feel they belong with strangers, that they're out there, you know, uh, protesting for a common message, a common virtue, and it feels good to belong. And that that's a piece to what's what's happening out in the streets. Is that is that fair to say? A sense of belonging? It might not be as organized as people want it to be, but it is a, a form of belonging. And it's a shared experience of, a, of, of oppression, right? Cur- right. And so we, and we talked about intersectionality, but intersecting, interlocking identities too. And so that's why you see now more than ever, like, you know, black men showing up for black women, you know, black women showing up for, you know, black um, LGBTQIA folks, right? You see trans folks showing up for black men and vice versa. We're realizing that there's this, there's this shared uh, experience of oppression has not been showing um, any value to the lives of black, black folks. Right. And so it's promoting this collective effort that allows us to rise above our differences in a way to uh, produce this massive movement for liberation of black folks and for equity and for systems change. And that in itself is tremendously healing, is tremendously empowering. Can you? So uh, I told you at the beginning that uh, I'd like to run through some of your workshops and some of these titles, one of which is Self-Love as a Revolutionary Act. I mean, you know, I love the title of that because when a person comes into counseling and therapy, the beginning of their liberation has begun. We don't say that to them. Um, And that your pain is your doorway. Your suffering and your trauma is is your chance. If you didn't have your suffering and your trauma, um, you wouldn't be given this chance. Here's a chance to really own your life, feel feel the life that you've lived so far, and create another one. I think that in some ways that's what the counseling opportunity offers. And I think the next level is self-love because it is an act of self-love to even come to a person and say i need help i need i need to be heard and so okay i will listen but beyond that one day you're going to need to learn to love yourself and then the real revolution begins i'm i might be inputting my ideas onto what your workshop on that has been, but could you talk a little bit about self-love as a revolutionary act? Yeah, and that's just it. You're, you're, you're touching on it, right? It's so, if we talk about, if we think about the impact of trauma and that shift from thinking that something was wrong with us, that something is innately wrong with us, right? and then being able to understand that something happened to us, but then like something is right with us, right? And then we start to see the value that we bring. Like right now, I'm sitting before you feeling valuable, feeling like I deserve to be here, right? If you would have met me 20 years ago, I wouldn't have thought that I deserved to be here. Mm-hmm. So it was a product of that process of, of healing, 
um, that included not only just like therapeutic support, but understanding my historical legacy as a black person that countered all of these other narratives that I internalized. Um, this process of realizing that something happened to me as an individual Right. And then getting to a place where I feel like I deserve to be here, that I am worthy, that I'm valuable. And then the revolution starts is that once you get to that place, once we get to that place, then we start to make demands to be treated worthy and valuable. I love that. Wonderful. So there's a boundary. Now I am a bounded self that is capable of feeling really good in life. And I want to nurture that and take care of that and love that self that is feeling bounded. And I won't allow the external world, external environment to deny me that self-love. Tremendous shift. Tremendous shift. What about the steps to get there? How do you know you love yourself? Yeah, I think... You know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, obviously everything is a process and this is definitely a process, right? Uh, We're learning to love ourselves, right? Um, And I think for me, I'll just bring it back to myself. I started to see patterns shift, right? Instead of engaging in um, behaviors that weren't like could potentially lead to me being hurt, right? And harming myself or um, putting myself in harm's way. I started to see that I was making decisions that showed that I valued myself differently. And there were instances, right, because the process, you know, the the history of trauma was so extensive. The the belief that I had of not being valuable was so deep that it takes time. And even to this day, I might make decisions that I'm like, why did I make that stupid decision? But at the same time, I see progress. I see pattern shift when I start to do things that are really healthy and conducive to me being who I want to be, um, to caring for myself, everything from the change in the way that I eat, the way that I treat my body, right? Yes. The relationships that I engage right. in. Um, and this is not to pathologize anyone who might be struggling at this point and finding themselves like engaging in patterns that it's not to say that you hate yourself. It's just say that we have to take some steps and we can work together on this healing journey to get to a place where we can all start to learn ourselves more and start to shift those patterns so that we can do things that are truly conducive to our well-being. Because at the core, all of us want the same thing. We want connections. We want to belong. Yes. We want to see people who see us as equal, as valuable, as making some sort of contribution is needed. That's when I knew that I started that process of learning to love myself because those shifts and those actions became obvious. And people around you will do it as well. That's I think right. that's contagious. When they they look at, wow, look at what's going on with Richard. Hey, he's thriving. I want a little piece of that. Let me hang around him. You know, I think those kinds of attitudes and ways of being are contagious, just as equally as negative behaviors and attitudes can be contagious. One of my one of my um, colleagues and dear friend, uh, Dr. Bruce Purnell, says, misery loves company, but joy loves company, too. <laughs> oh, it's good to add to that <laughs> phrase that's, most of us know. That's great. And I really appreciate hearing your, like, to be able to recognize the shift. And a part of that, I find that's, that can be like the most difficult part is that those impulses, like it sounds like you've got a lot of impulse control. Those impulses are so strong. They are like biological imperatives that are like banging on the door. 
And it's like to be able to like sit back and recognize that and resist the impulse that's going to potentially be a bad impulse. It's like some are good. Some you have to like, you know, fight or stand for yourself. But others are the self-destructive ones to recognize those and to just, again, slow down and maybe breathe and just like, is this really what I want to do? Like get yourself into your, your forebrain and, and, and start to recognize like it's a, that is a very difficult process. And to think about how at some point, in some instances, you really are stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? So any decision that you make, it's like you're just hoping that this decision is not as bad as the other one, (laughs) right? But, you know, things have happened and we find ourselves in this position and we have to make a decision. And I think that's what's so important about compassion, you know, when we interact with each other right? and trying to suspend our judgment as much as we can to try to understand what predicament is a person in um, that would cause them to want to make that decision. Right. Because for them, it might have just been the very best decision that they could make. And if we come into the situation and we want to judge it or pathologize it in a way that makes them feel bad, we're not helping them heal. I could see developing a checklist, you know, that, that as we're transitioning to a self-love paradigm and revolution for ourselves, that when we get confused, we could have a checklist of, of is this behavior going to enmesh me in this kind of drama or is it going to liberate me to go in this direction? Is this decision going to be bad for my body or a danger to my body uh, or is it going to support and help my body? You know, so I think we can unconsciously, but even very deliberately, you know, develop a checklist of items that could go in the health and healing and thriving and flourishing direction versus the stagnant and, and, and the staying in place version. And, and that right there is the step towards healing. It's like showing that you actually have a choice. Because when you're caught in those trauma patterns and programs, there is no choice on some level until you recognize, wait a minute, I'm still yeah. doing, you know, it's like, it's like there needs to be a little light opening in a doorway that says, wait a minute, there is another option. But, but wow, when you're in those, in those trauma protocols, there is no choice. This is the only way. There's no chooser. Yeah. Right. There's no chooser. So I have a little right. secret to share. One Please. of the projects that I'm working on um, with um, Jennifer Lopez, Dr. Erda Ortega Williams and Dr. Alexis Jamal and several other organizations um, is the development of a healing scale to measure healing, um, the attributes of healing. Um, Similar to the way that we measure symptoms of PTSD, um, we've come up with a functional definition of healing. I yes. can't share right oh, now. Not yet. Wow. <laughs> yeah, please, um, please, please, to please really promise to, the, to, to, like. so, to bring yeah. the former uh, or the uh, the future owner of the New York Mets to our studio yeah, with you we <laughs> so we can talk about healing and health. That'd be great. Uh, uh, checklist or... Uh, um, but yeah. yes, when you do come out with it, tell us and come back. Please, and, yeah. and please let us, let, let us know. I definitely will. If you want to contact Richard Smith, you've been listening to The Positive Mind. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed New York State mental health counselor. We've been talking for two shows with Richard Smith. Um, 
So much to say about him, a very accomplished uh, workshop presenter and social activist, uh, very alive in, in bringing healing modalities to uh, the African-American community. And I'd have to say to any community you happen to be a part of, uh, Richard, I appreciate you being here. If you want to reach him, you can uh, write him at richardsmithspeaks at gmail.com. And I want to talk with the last six or seven minutes that we have, Nasima, about trauma, since you're a trauma specialist. But I can't help but think um, about the relation part of what he was saying. So he talked about regulate and relate yeah, as um, important in healing trauma, working with trauma. And you work with trauma quite a bit. But I thought it would be important to talk first about the relation be- relationship because I think there's nothing more – helpful to a person struggling with trauma or difficulty or anxiety or really any of the symptoms that you and I both deal with, if they have a partner or a person that they can just simply talk to. And relate to. I mean, that was the word he used, relate. And be related to. You know, I often talk about healing trauma by first creating a space a space for a person to feel. Often when people are feeling trauma or even depression or anxiety, it's crushing, almost to the point where they don't even feel themselves separate from their trauma, separate from their anxiety or or depression. So I think one of the first steps would be to create space for a person to separate out the trauma from who they really are. Can you say something about that? Yeah, because that also uh, relates to what we said earlier about having a chooser and a choice. Yeah. When you don't feel any space, you don't have any choice. And so, yeah, space is really important. Slowing down is really important and relating. So talk first then about healing trauma through relating, because I think a, a grounding exercise uh, that we practice and that we do when we teach this workshop called Safe Conversations, where people, partners relate to each other, we first have them face each other and look at each other and look in each other's eyes. And I I want to just tell our audience, like, this is one of the most dangerous things to do, right? How many people do you actually get to volunt- voluntarily look in their eyes and them in yours in a non-threatening way? So this in itself can be a way of creating space inside and regulating. Can you talk a little bit about the space that we create with the Safe Conversation and the breath, the importance of the breathing. Well, breathing is the sort of number one way to downregulate the nervous system. If you can change your breath, if you can like consciously shift the pattern of breathing, very often when somebody's feeling anxious, they'll be high in their breathing and they'll breathe very fast or irregularly. And if you can get them to slow their breathing down a little bit, deepen it a little bit, if they can't, sometimes if you do it, Right. They'll unconsciously start cueing with you. So if you just start breathing a little slower, a little deeper, that will start to regulate your nervous system and theirs. Right. And it's it's a really important, great thing to do. And to just be like, if somebody's really feeling out of sorts, just come on, take a couple of breaths with me. Right. Let's just let's just breathe together. A and when bit. we do couples work, and I do couples work individually with people. Um, you know, I get them to regulate their nervous system right away because they're coming in very charged and angry with each other and have so many frustrations and complaints that I say, well, wait, 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 let's wait a second. Let's get the nervous system calm so that you can really present 
your frustration in a kind of non-reactive, logical way, in a way that's going to help resolve it. And will help the other be able to hear it. Right, and not be defensive. And I think this is really important, especially in these really charged times that we're living in and what Richard was talking about, too, that that if we can just sit down and, you know, take some moments together and really get into a frame of mind to listen and to be available and to be able to, this will help you hold the space a little bit for someone who's struggling or, or has a frustration they want to share. Using Richard's uh, experience and his uh, being here today, we could say, like, the way he deals with trauma, intergenerational or even individually, um, is to ask what happened. So, you know, I, I couldn't help but think, like, isn't that, like, so healing when a parent, when a parent says to a child, okay, tell me what happened or what happens? So this is, like, universal, you can say even, you know, to somebody who lost their job, somebody who's retired, any age group, you know, you can say, what what happened? What's happening? Or what happened? What are you feeling? Mm-hmm. And then, so, and then you would say, well, I um, I broke up with somebody or I had a um, an argument with somebody and I haven't gotten over it and I feel terrible. And you would mirror that. So can you mirror that? Yeah, so it sounds like you, if I heard you, you broke up with someone and you feel really terrible. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it just it was the way that I did it. I didn't really like the way I did it. So it was, um, I'm really upset more about the way I did it than that I had to do it. Right, and and I would mirror, so you just feel really um, kind of upset about how you did it. Not so much that you did it, but how you did it. And it's really upsetting. Can you say more about that? And this, so this is a way, and this is something that we teach um, about regulating yourself and getting ready to relate to somebody and to discharge and, and regulate your system. How about in trauma in general? What, is, what are the protocols to have? You have a person who comes into your office who is feeling traumatized. What are the consistent tools that you turn to? Well, I often will turn to orienting as a way to just help them arrive, sometimes grounding, let them just feel the support of the seat under the chair, and to breathe, to do some some breaths. I teach a straw breath, which is like a slow, pressured exhale, which really helps regulate the, the nervous system and helps you feel into your body. The main thing with someone who's experiencing or feeling really charged with trauma is to get them into the present moment, to get them into a space that is safe, as long as it is safe, they're in the present moment. We want to bring Richard back. So that's going to be the end of our podcast for today. We want to bring Richard back to talk to us about uh, measuring healing, a checklist that he was talking about. And just as we have this checklist, Nasima, about helping people with trauma, one of the things we do is get grounded, help them orient themselves to the present moment, and then variety of techniques. Uh, so we're so glad that you joined us today for uh, the follow-up show with Richard D. Smith. If you want to reach Richard, you can reach him at richardsmithspeaks at gmail.com or on Instagram, rssspeaks. RSS, RS, RS speaks. speaks. Okay, that's it. And we want to thank our affiliates uh, for airing the positive mind. KXCR 90.7 in Florence, Oregon. KYGT 102.7 in Idaho Springs. KPPQ 104.1 in Ventura, California. 
WGRN in Columbus, Ohio, 94.1, WRWK, 93.9, Richmond, Virginia. We'd like to thank our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can contact us at tffpp.org with questions, comments, or suggestions. The, for the Foundation show. for PositivePsychology.org. Thanks for joining us. We will be back next week. Have a very good week, folks. Bye-bye.